Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Simon Brown. Nadia Token from 27.4 joins me this evening to guide us through all the latest news on global markets. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Pete Florent from RECM to discuss their Global Flexible Fund. All that way coming your shortly, coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making headlines. Oil is back below the 2014 record it hit two weeks ago. This is Saudi Arabia and Russia embark on discussions about raising output by about 1 million barrels to ease fears after oil topped $80 a barrel, signaling trouble for economic growth and inflation. Meanwhile, analysts have pointed out that a total shutdown in Venezuelan production could soon prompt crude futures to skyrocket yet again. On to some company news. The U.S. jury has ruled that Samsung must pay Apple $539 million for copying patented smartphone features. The ruling comes seven years after the global patent battle began. Apple originally sought $1 billion in damages, but it says the case has always been more than just the money. And following Facebook's Cambridge Analytica data scandal, the EU's general data protection regulation kicked into effect on Friday, introducing much tougher rules on data privacy. He has more on that report. You might have noticed a lot of emails like this in your inbox lately. That's because of Friday's new EU law on data privacy. It's called GDPR, or General Data Protection Regulation. The aim is to force companies to manage the data customers sign over to them in a safe way. It applies to any identifying information such as your name, address, religious beliefs or sexual orientation. The GDPR means people living in the EU can expect clear information about who is processing their data and why, access to the data held about them, the right to have personal data corrected or erased. Reuters technology editor Douglas Buzzvine. There's a feeling that these big platform companies, the social media, the e-commerce companies from Silicon Valley know too much about us, that they're collecting data, they're doing corporate surveillance. And in Europe, uh, you know, politicians, the people don't like it so much. GDPR won't just apply to businesses based in the EU, but to any company that has customers in the EU. For those firms, it means no more hiding privacy consents in general terms and conditions, keeping records of all the data held, a 72-hour deadline for reporting serious data breaches, fines of up to 4% of annual revenue for serious infringements. GDPR will be policed by EU watchdogs, and big companies must now appoint a data protection officer to ensure they're on top of the law. Nadia Token from 27.4 joins me now. Let's touch on that GDPR. First. I, I don't know about my inbox is being completely flooded. My sense is probably good for consumers, probably a upfront cost for companies that will be you know, an upfront bigger fee and smaller yep. going forward. Yep. Not a big deal from an investor perspective, really. Not, not a big deal in terms of the numbers immediately, but I think what will be what will be felt long term is uh, for investors is um, you know the ability of these companies to sort of leverage the advertisers and to be able to and to be able to gain that kind of revenue growth that they've been gaining from advertisements um, over the last couple of years. I mean, if you look at uh, Google, Facebook, um, their bread and butter is basically a, a lot of the the, the, the social media uh, platforms. Instagram would be another one. Twitter would be another one. Their bread 
and butter is advertising, isn't it? Now, and knowing who we are and what we do. Exactly. Because so information is the new is the commodity of the 21st century. Who cares about oil and copper and <laughs> iron ore anymore? It's all about uh, big data, and it's all about being able to do that targeted advertising. Now, if you less able to do to to provide statistics so that uh, advertisers can target you, advertisers are less likely to spend on those kind of mediums. So, I mean, that's a worst case scenario playing out over the long term. But I think there's certainly going to be a strong reassessment of uh, you know, how these global brands reach their consumers and what kind of growth rate we see in terms of uh, top-line revenue growth from advertisements for a lot of these online, online media platforms. I mean, if you look at Facebook and, and, and Google's latest results, um, you know, they stormed ahead of market analyst expectations yeah. on the back of those advertising uh, revenue growth, particularly Facebook. Um, but if Cambridge Analytica scandals have something to do with data protection and data privacy in the U.S., it starts to become doubtful in terms of, you know, how these technology companies can continue to do that. I think that's been what's been so amazing about Tencent is that Tencent has made a commitment not to sell their users data, yet they managed to generate 61% revenue growth year on year. I suppose that's what a, um, a, a monopoly in a market that has a 1.2 billion consumers gives you. You don't, you don't have to sell data to get that kind of revenue growth. But certainly for the rest of the tech players and even Tencent as they start expanding globally, um, you know, they start going to ask some hard questions of these new regulations, this GDPR particularly. It's a fair point. I mean, Apple as well. Apple doesn't sell your data, although they're a hardware company more than anything else. Okay, so something we definitely do need to watch in the, the quarters going ahead. As you said, we had some standout results from Let, Let's take this to the US. We were closed both London and New York today, Memorial and Spring Day, respectively. I'd love to take a holiday on Spring Day. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, the U.S. tenure, uh, two weeks ago, 3%, a week ago, 3.1%, sat here with my guests, the world is ending, yeah. number to watch. Yeah. Now it's 2.93. If we put it in perspective, it's a 0.2% move, but yeah. that's 10% from where it was to where it is now. Yeah. Uh, it, how do we read this? Yeah. Look, I mean, it, it is quite a challenge, and that's the problem with having very low interest rates, is that that convexity of these fixed income instruments is astronomical. You know, like you mentioned, 20 basis point move, and that's sort of like a 5 6% capital loss yeah. um, or capital gain, depending on which direction you're talking about, um, as a result of the yields moving like that. Look, I mean, I think there's a lot of fear in the world at the moment. Um, the market is very undecided as to which way we're going to end up on this geopolitical risk story. Um, it flares up every now and again with Trump saying, well, I want to meet with Kim Jong-un. Actually, I don't want to meet with him. Actually, I do want to meet with him. Um, you, then also, Italian elections has been one of the key, or the, the, the Italian debacle really has been one of the key factors to watch play out and a general Eurozone risk and European risk and how that's going to play out. Um, so there's been a number of geopolitical risks and the market seems very, very sensitive to these risks, especially the US and Iran as well with the, you know Trump basically sc- completely scuppering the Iran deal yeah. that, was, that was brokered between um, his predecessor and the European Union. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of nervousness in global markets at the moment, but the market is almost in this stop-start kind of go framework, you know, because global growth seems to be relatively robust. If you look at the U.S. numbers that are coming out, they're really good. You look at the earnings numbers are phenomenal, particularly from the first quarter. So, you know, that should be a go-go-go kind of environment and the market being less concerned about risk-off kind of scenario. Um, but then you see, you know, companies kind of sneak in a comment 
about, well, this is as good as it's going to get if you listen to Caterpillar's earnings call um, and a number of the U.S. banks as well getting a lot of tailwinds from the once-off impact of the tax cuts. And when you get these risk-off scenarios and you get geopolitical tensions colliding, people, you, you know, you, and, and you get concerns about the Fed hiking interest rates and the rest of the world not being able to do so, um, you, you know, you see the world flocking to, to safe haven assets and away from interest-sensitive assets. I think, uh, and, and, and that's what we saw happening, and EM currencies taking an absolute beating on the back of that as the U.S. Treasuries climbed up, climbed up quite aggressively. I think where we are now is that we're probably going to see the 10-year the, the trading in a range. I think the Fed's going to be very careful about how they manage the communication. Remember that, um, you know, that 10-year Treasury getting well above 3% has some dire consequences for the U.S. economy. Yeah. Uh, so they're going to be watching that carefully, but I still think three interest rate increases this year. Three inc- you talk, I mean, are we almost... And I'm not going to ask you to put a date to this. Yeah. Sort of, at, you know, we're at the beginning of the end of, the, of, of this, what's now been almost a nine-year bull market. We've got the emerging markets, which are mm. looking kind of 98-ish, not as bad as 98, but kind mm. of, you know, we've got some currencies blowing out. We've got yeah. interest rates suddenly at 40% yeah. and, and, and the like, I mean, overnight. Um, we've got the, the, as you say, the CEOs, not being bearish, but perhaps mm. signing some caution. We yeah. could go another year or two, but we're unlikely to go another five years. Yeah, look, I mean, I think we've seen some histor- seen some very strong returns over the last decade. Let's not forget the, the base we are coming on, sure. right? So, I mean, uh, the, the, you, can't, you can't ignore that. So, are we going to have another 380% rally over the next decade? No, we probably not. Um, you know, that was, that, that's, be, that's been a gift, but you've got to remember the kind of base you're coming off. But I think global equities are going to be just fine. You know, I mean, uh, you're talking about over the course of a decade, you're getting, you know, something like 500% returns. That's a compounded annual return of something like... 14, 14, 13, 14%. You know, those are astronomical returns. Probably don't expect that. But to get kind of high single digit, maybe very low double digit uh, 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 growth from equity markets from this point, I don't think that's out of the question. And I think there's really two reasons why that's the case. I think one, people overestimate how expensive equity markets are. If you look at Mm -hmm. the derating we've had so far this year, peak to trough of about, um, you know, almost 20%. And in fact, the S&P 500 is now in line with its long 30 year average price to forward PE multiples. So we're not paying above average multiples given the kind of sell-off we've seen. That's the first point. The second point is that I think the earnings quality we're getting is significantly better. I mean, if you looked at JP Morgan for the first quarter had its best quarterly results ever in the history of it being a bank. Now, you know, that's probably not going to be repeated, but the point is that the kind of earnings growth we're get, getting is certainly not commensurate with average multiples. And I think geopolitical risk obviously playing a big role in that. Um, and I think the third factor is that companies are sitting on $7 trillion of cash. And apart from a couple of the very marginal players who have leveraged themselves because of low interest rates, uh, the world is significantly de-geared relative to a decade ago. So the quality of earnings are better. The scope for investment is much, much better given the cash piles. And um, we have the tailwinds of the improving economy, which is certainly a global economy. It's not going to go anywhere for a while because at the first hiccup of uh, sign of a hiccup of the global economy, I can guarantee you central banks are going to rush back in and provide ample liquidity, um, which is going to provide some support for risk assets. So I don't think it's a doomsday scenario, um, but, at this, and, and, but at the same time, I don't think we're going to get to, you know, 500% returns from global equities over the next Kind decade. of Goldilocks, and, and 500 was nice, but as you say, we're not going to give it any time. Let's quickly touch some companies. Netflix uh, uh, on Friday was for a short while bigger than Disney. Yeah. Disney's a stock I deeply like. Yeah. Truthfully, I like Netflix too. I, I just, I, I, there seems, I mean, that valuation just seems a little bit eye-watering. Yeah. 
I suppose the market is just saying, you know, Netflix, 115 million subscribers, $10 a month. Mm. You do the math. Yeah. It's a machine and its costs really are just produce some content. Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I, I think that picture is going to change a little bit because, as you mentioned, this space is all about content. What content do you have? What content yeah. don't you have? So Netflix originally, um, you know, a lot of the content providers signed up with Netflix um, originally five, six years ago when Netflix just launched. And that was because we're going to this online revolution and we're going to this viewing on demand. People don't want DSTV where I watch three channels. I don't watch the other 197 channels. Yet I pay for a full DSTV subscription. People want view on demand and they want to only pay for the content that they use. So it was a highly attractive model a decade ago. The issue now is that they've had exponential user growth on the back of that. Uh, but coming up 2018, 2019, sort of back end of 2019 as well, uh, there's a lot of these initial content agreements are expiring with Netflix. Now what's going to happen is that um, either the content providers are going to take their content elsewhere, um, and we've seen Disney certainly producing a whole lot of their own content um, in-house so they don't have this risk of content expiring. And uh, all the other things that Netflix has now got to pay up multiples of what they originally yeah. paid up for the rights to those contents. And I think that's what's going to be more likely the scenario. If you look at what Netflix has been communicating to the market for the best part of a year, uh, they're going on a massive what they would call R&D spend, but really what that is, they've got to buy content. The same problem that Tencent has, laying out something like $8 billion for content, that's a number, you know, and when you're trading on the kind of multiples you are, uncertain where you're going to go in the content battle or who's going to be the next entrant into this market, given the kind of phenomenal growth you've had, fairly low barrier to entry, you start to question, you know, whether the stock is worth what it is. And as you mentioned, trading richer than, than Disney, which largely, um, first of all, produces its own content. Second of all, um, you know, has the parks business globally, yeah. um, which, is, business. Which, is, which, is, which is now becoming a significant business. They've recently taken over Euro Disney, which was an underperforming asset for a long period of time. Uh, they're talking about return on equities from that, from, from that business in excess of 20%, uh, which is astronomical given where their cost of capital is, how low interest rates are globally. Even if they go up to one and a half, two, two and a half percent, you know, that, that return on equity is still highly attractive. And I think uh, the barriers to entry there are large. It costs a bucket load of money to build a theme park. So there aren't going to be a whole lot of people entering that market and they don't have the risk of rollover content. So I certainly think that, especially when you've got a Netflix, same size or larger than a Walt Disney, you know, it's it, it's kind of a no-brainer to me which trade is going to win over the it's next. For Disney, decade. because if nothing else, they've got Mickey, which which Netflix doesn't have. <laughs> um, and you talk streaming; they've got ESPN streaming. They can yeah. start doing their own streaming. I mean, exactly. they can they can stream this product that yeah. they've got, the yeah, Star Wars own, franchise. They own it. That's about the Star Wars franchise. All Walt Disney characters, ESPN, they own all those franchises. They don't have the risk of having to negotiate the content deals every three years, and you know, going to somebody who's willing to pay a little bit more. They own all the content. I think that's the big difference. Yeah, so Netflix might actually have sort of shown them the way and almost yeah. in a sense, dug, not their grave, but created yeah. their competition. We're going to go for a short break. When we come back, we'll look at the RECM Global Flexible Fund with Pete Fullen. Don't go away.
Welcome back. You're watching Global Investor. Still with me in studio, Lydia Token from 27.4. And joining us on the line to discuss the RECM Global Flexible Fund is Pete Fuller. And Pete, uh, evening. Thanks very much for joining us on the line, I assume, from Cape Town. I, I want to kick off with a, with a point that you make in your, in your sort of top part of the minimum disclosure document. And you say risk is possibility of losing money, not volatility. And, and the point you're making, I very much suspect, is that in this world which has become driven by three-minute soundbites and, and Twitter updates, you're pretty much saying if you've got the quality, don't worry about the movement, you can hold it. And it, it, it might take years, but the investing is that long-term game. I guess that's right. Uh, we, we try and look through the short-term you know, ups and downs of you know, what the market price is, is doing and look at the underlying value of the business we, we, we're studying and focus on that rather than the market price. And when the market price does move to an extent that gives us an opportunity to acquire assets at a discount to sell assets at a premium, then, then we'll look at the market. But our focus is mainly on the business and the value of that business. And, and we try and look through the short-term volatility. If we talk value, I mean, I, I think every, unless you're a momentum trader or investor, everyone's going to say they want to buy at value. My, my sense of, 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 of uh, you and your colleagues' investment style, and, and certainly from your, from your local funds, is, is more and almost a, a Graham and Dobbs, maybe not as extreme as Graham and Dobbs, but a, a, a much more sort of classic valuation methodology than perhaps just, you know, NASPAS at over 4,000 or Aspen at over 400. Yeah, that, that's right. I, the, the way I like to describe it is uh, we are like short-duration investors. So we, we like to look at cash flows which are right here in front of us next year, next two years, next three years. We don't like projecting cash flows 20 years in the future and discounting them back because there's, there's too much that can change and, uh, and too many variables that can impact those cash flows and also the discount rates at which you discount those cash flows. So, so we look, like to look at the situation where you're paying a PE of two or three or four for an asset that's worth maybe a P of eight or ten, you know, so you can see the two, three, four years cash flow right in front of you. For us, that's a lower risk type environment, and where we don't have to uh, forecast technology and the changes that technology brings to to, to society and the and the, and the changes that society imposes on technology. We, you know, those things are hard to forecast. Next, next delve into the fund uh, going since uh, April 2003, so a solid 15 years plus. What surprised me with that it, it's global. There's a fair bunch, and in fact, 40-odd percent is SA equity. I suppose the biases, we think SA equity, truthfully, a lot of that SA equity is, is dealing in global brands and, and well, certainly beyond the borders of, of South Africa, and obviously by your methodology, showing great value. That's right. Uh, for us today, um, there is quite a lot of value in smaller and mid-cap South African industrial companies, which are completely out of favour, uh, and are going through tough, uh, tough, uh, tough earnings period over the past year or two or three. Um, the, I think the ANC government has made it very hard for companies to generate profits, and, and you've seen the reflection of that in the earnings streams coming out of companies. Uh, so those, and, and today, those com you know, investors are not really attracted by those companies, so they are undervalued in our opinion, and we think that's a sort of opportunity a value investors should take advantage of. Um, conversely, uh, when you look at the broad, uh, the, the global investment universe, a lot of really good quality businesses are overvalued because these days every investor is a quality investor, so they pay up for quality, uh, and, and we struggle to do that. So, so we look at dislocations at areas of the world where things are tough, and South Africa is one of them, and that's why we have a, a, a 
large exposure to Africa at this point in time. Yeah, so South Africa, large exposure. The other place where it's tough, uh, Brexit. Uh, that vote was, uh, what, almost two years ago now. Um, that's yep. your second biggest holding. I, I imagine much as what we've seen play out in South Africa has uh, differently, but broadly the same sort of sense, played out in, in the United Kingdom. Very similar. You're quite right to point that out. They, they're sitting with a very weak currency. I would argue their currency is probably the weakest currency in the world at this point in time. Sentiment is very negative, um, and therefore asset values have declined to levels where investors, uh, you know, can safely invest. You know, the margin of safety is quite wide. So that's a, that's the thing that did strike me, I a lot of folks are saying, you know, the U.S., we get the story, much of the U.S., and, and, and Nadia was just saying, that, you know, the forward P and the S&P 500 is at its 30-year average, not much value to be seen there. A lot of investors then turn their shift towards Europe, say Europe has been sort of catching up, a lot of opportunity there. Looking at your fund, very light on, on the EU, a bit of Europe, a little bit of Switzerland, but, but frankly, you, I mean, you've got almost as much Brazil as you have those areas there. You, you, you're not picking up anything in, in Europe. You're not seeing anything exciting there at all. Uh, you know, if you rewind the clock back four or five years ago, when, when the European Union was under tremendous pressure, when Greece was uh, about to default in Portugal, you know, there was an old thing about the pigs, uh, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. Mm -hmm. At that point, we had quite large exposure to Europe because it was under pressure. There was a massive dislocation happening. Assets were being thrown out and undervalued. Um, over the past four years, it's recovered. The currency's recovered. The euro has been fairly strong over the past four years. Uh, so the margin of safety has declined, and the investment prospects have diminished as a result of that. So we've reduced our exposure to Europe uh, in the short term in favor uh, of the UK. And we remain light on the US for two reasons. Number one, it is probably the most popular place to invest globally. For good reason, because there's, uh, there's a lot of companies there, but it does also attract a lot of competition. And, you know, if you want to win a game, you've got to pick the right game. And if you pick the game where everybody's trying to win, it's a hard game to win. So we try and pick a game where there's less people trying to win it. That gives us better odds. So we're not really in, in the U.S. And the other thing in the U.S. is the currency, we think the dollar is extremely strong. We think it's, it's an overvalued currency. So, so if you invest in the U.S., you're investing into a headwind of a very strong currency. Nadia, we were talking before we came on. I mean, Europe certainly makes a good point. People might say Europe's lagging the US, but the real opportunity was when those pigs were breaking, when yeah. there was uh, Greece defaults and there was absolute fear. That was probably, the, the bad, in hindsight, definitely the better opportunity. Probably got full evaluation sitting in the continent now. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. We ha we have seen a strong rally from from European equities. We've seen a strong rally from from um, fr from from the euro as well. Um, but you know, I think it's also been it, it it has lagged the extent of the rally in the US simply because there aren't many tech companies listed in Europe, and tech Good has point. been a big driver of of returns in 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 in, in global equity markets as well. But uh, you know, there's been some quality companies, some staples in Europe, uh, which have obviously Obviously, seen big inflows over the course of uh, the last couple of years, as well as we've been in a low return environment and people chasing the cash flow, and that's also I think offset some of the some of the tech sector. But uh, you know, I think there are it's it's, it's interesting that, that that Pitt mentions that because uh, I think pure, purely from a value manager, it's 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 there, there are certainly a lot more 
or value managers in generally finding a lot more opportunity in Europe than they are finding in, in the US because of the tech bias of the US. I suppose the US is a big market. So you can, if you look hard enough, you can, you, you can find value anywhere. I think, Pete, maybe just one question from my side. Um, the value has really gone through a torrid time globally for the last decade. It's been through its longest patch of underperformance uh, for a decade now. Um, and, and I think it's really be, it, it, it's been a tough ask to, for, for value managers over the last decade. What, in your mind, what do you think is going to be the, 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 the catalyst for unlocking value in a lot of these opportunities? Because investors, I suppose, are starting to grow impatient given the duration of the underperformance relative to previous cycles. You're 100% right. But if I could identify that catalyst, I'd probably keep that news to myself <laughs> and try and make a lot of money out of it. <laughs> if I had to guess, and this is a pure guess, I don't know if there's going to be a catalyst. I, I do think there's been a strong correlation, but that's not to say that it's causation, but there's been a strong correlation between value and performance and declining interest rates. Interest rates have been on the declining trend for the past 10 years globally. And what that means is that the cash flow of long-duration assets, technology assets, assets that are making a profit now that might make a profit in the future sometime, though the present value of those cash flows has been increased tremendously through low interest rates, yeah. uh, whereas value assets tend to be short-duration assets, and interest rates don't really make such a big difference when you discount those the next year and the following year's cash flows back. So we think that the decline in interest rates has had a major impact on value investing relative to growth investing. And we do think also, and again, this is just a guess, not a forecast, but we are of the opinion that we are at an inflection point in interest rates globally, and it looks like interest rates want to start moving up. And they actually have been moving up for the past 18 months or so. And over the past 18 months, value investing has done, if anything, uh, quite a bit better than it has in the past. So, so we think it's linked to interest rates. But again, if I knew that for a fact, um, I'd retire today and put all my money on red. <laughs> <laughs> we would join you on that one. Uh, Pete, quickly before we go, it's a czar-based fund, which I think is interesting. A lot of times folks need money offshore and the like. Obviously, you're, you're investing around the world. You know, more than 50% is, is, is in non-SA. Uh, do you take a, a call on, on, on the currency? You, you mentioned the US dollar a moment ago. Or are you going to be sort of broadly ag- 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 agnostic? No, we, we agnostic when it comes to currency. We, we analyze the underlying business. We look for good businesses available cheaply. If they're available in cheap currency, that adds to investment attractiveness. But we're not, you know, we're not hedging out currencies or anything like that. Um, our currency exposure falls out from where the good investment opportunities are. And generally, they tend to go together because when markets are negative, when the dislocation markets get negative on an asset, at the same time, they tend to get negative on the currency as well. And we only have to look at our own history in South Africa. You know, a year ago, people were very negative on South Africa. The currency was very weak. Um, uh, but since then, things have improved and the currency, the currency has strengthened. So, you know, we're quite used to those swings from a South African perspective. And we try and take advantage of them. Quickly, we're running out of time. I noticed you changed your ben- benchmark in January 2014. It was inflation plus eight. Now your benchmark's inflation plus six. Uh, my sense is that's almost a relative process. If inflation is generally lower this decade than the previous decade, you kind of want that relative number. Was that hence the change? No, the change is actually more predicated on the fact that exchange controls had loosened at that point to the extent where we could actually invest anywhere in the world and weren't only or predominantly um, uh, ring-fenced into South Africa. So in South Africa, I think one can expect high real returns because of a risky environment. 
But if you start spending your money more globally, I think the real returns are slightly lower because there's a less risk environment there if we build the benchmark down. Perfect, thanks. All right, that's the show for this week. My thanks to our guests, Nidia Token, Portfolio Manager at 274, and Pete Flynn, CEO of RCM, talking around their Global Flexible Fund. My thanks to you for watching. Same time next week. Goodbye.